Welcome to North Boston Korean United Methodist Church. Here we are a family that seeks to love others the way Jesus loved us and raise people up in his love. We are grateful to have you listening. Regardless of who you are, you are welcome here. For more information, check out our website at mbkumc.com. Before we continue with today's sermon series, I just want to address uh, something. Um, so I, I'm aware that we, well, our whole church is aware um, that there are regulations that are being lifted in the state of Massachusetts. So our church had a church-wide meeting about how to move forward, given the fact that places of worship are now considered essential, not just to work in, but I guess to go to all together. Um, and our church has decided that it is not yet safe to gather together. Um, yeah, it, our church was just in wisdom and in faith and out of concern and love for every single person in our congregation, we've decided to hold off on following the, the, order, the federal order to lift this ban because um, I guess we've just, it's sad to say, but I guess we've just hit the point in this country where um, the government is not following <laughs> health guidelines. And so even though uh, the ban is lifted for places of worship, it doesn't actually change the fact that um, pandemic is still is still <laughs> happening and the curve is not that softened and <laughs> numbers are still on a steady incline, especially with these government lifts. Um, so yeah, so that's why that's the latest news about whether or not we can worship and gather together in church. I'm sorry for those of you guys who might be disappointed. I'm also truly disappointed that we can't gather together, but I would rather be disappointed than have any of you be sick. Um, so that's what it is. I also wanted to guide us to be able to see the fact that we can worship together, even if we're not in the same space, um, in hope not in better circumstances, but in a man called Jesus that has saved us all and have bound us together in unity and also in excitement for the day that we get to reunite. So that being said, we will be continuing in our sermon series through Acts. It's quite interesting that we are continuing in the sermon series through Acts during a time where we might not feel like we can act. Um, but I really believe that there is a call that God is placing for us to be able to move together. And so we're continuing our sermon series. We're actually going to be reading from the end of Acts chapter 4 to the beginning of Acts chapter 5. So we're looking at Acts chapter 4 verses 32. I scrolled too far. Acts chapter 4, verses 32, all the way through Acts chapter, 11, Acts chapter 5, verses 11. Um, I'm going to be reading from the ESV, so please feel free to read from whatever. Um, just know that there are discrepancies in the text um, between translations. We are not standing, but as we say every week, God's word deserves all the reverence, so... I pray that we would have a posture as though we are standing for his holy and perfect word. And I encourage you guys to stand if, if, that, if you are able. 
This is the word of the Lord. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, Barnabas or Barnabah, um, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and only brought a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young man came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in praying? God, I thank you for your holy and perfect word. I thank you, Lord, that you have brought every single person in this call and outside of this call to be together. I thank you, Lord, that you are guiding us through the book of Acts. I thank you, God, that you love North Boston and that you have a word to say to all of us. Father, Lord, I pray that it would not be my words, but that it would be your words that are preached, that it would be your words that hit the hearts of your people. I pray that you would hide me behind your cross, that it is only you who is glorified and only you who is magnified. Father Lord, we believe that you are Jehovah Jireh. We believe that you are a God that gives to each and every person as they have need. So be it comfort or conviction or guidance or support or even challenge. I pray, Jesus, that you would place great burden on hearts that in the ways that you desire. For your word is living and active, sharp like a double-edged sword, and it cuts to the motivations of our hearts. It reveals to us everything within us, and there's nothing in heaven and on earth can be that can be hidden in front of your word. And so, God, I just pray that it would be your word that is preached, that it would be you that is magnified, and that it would be you that speaks to all of us, including me. We are your flock. We are your people. We are your sons and daughters. 
So Jesus, we submit under your authority. Be magnified in this worship service. Holy Spirit, take us to the next level with you. We believe that wherever every single person is, Father, that your spirit is tangibly there right now, moving in the midst of hearts. So God, we just pray for encounter with you. We pray, God, for boldness to encounter you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Last week we talked about I think last week we talked about prayer um, and we got to talk a little bit about the importance of prayer and the reasonableness of prayer and the necessity of prayer. But today we're going to be talking in light of prayer and in light of all of these things that we've heard, we're going to be talking about church and transparency. So the first thing that we read in this Chapter actually before before I go into whatever God's word is for us this morning, I want to encourage us um, by asking you a question. Normally, I would have you guys ask each other this question, turn to your right and left, um, but be conscious of other people and also of your own heart as I ask you this question. Do you think you can give your possessions to your best friend? Do you think you can give your possessions to the homeless man down the street? And the third is, do you have friends? <laughs> do you have friends? Sometimes I think I have friends. Just kidding. Just kidding. Yeah. Obviously, I'm with my friends because um, we live together. So, yes, I have friends. But do you... Maybe not many. Just kidding. I'm just kidding. But maybe, <laughs> sorry, how do I get out of this, this hole that I've dug myself very fast? Do you have friends? Today we're going to talk a little bit about active church and the grace and the judgment of God. So the first thing I want to touch upon was is in the beginning it says that God's people were well well actually it says the full number of everyone who was present were of one heart and one soul one heart cardia and one soul suhe and I want to touch upon this first and foremost because this is talking about the community of God it's actually a parallel to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. We went over this a couple weeks ago, not too long ago, about the community of the believers. If you guys haven't looked at, um, if you guys haven't been able to keep up with every single one of the sermons, which is completely okay, we're in the pandemic, um, I highly recommend uh, re-watching um, the community of the believers and the prayer message, because I believe that those were imparted by the word of God, especially, uh, that those are God given. Um, and we've talked a little bit about those verses, but actually these verses in Acts chapter four is actually a parallel to Acts two forty two to 47. The only thing that it doesn't vocalize is actually eating together and meeting together. Um, but it talks about the heart motivations of the community of God. So if, if in Acts 2, 42, 2, 42 to 47, it's about the actions of how the believers were in common and what they actually did day to day, this is actually speaking into the motivations of their heart and how that carried out in love. And so 
the way that it talks about the motivations of what it means to be the body of Christ is it says it was one heart and one soul. Now it sounds really poetic and it sounds really nice, but the pragmatist in me asks, can't help but ask, what does that mean to be of one heart and one soul? So we're going to unpack that a little bit. When it says that they were of one heart, what is the significance of the heart in a person? And in the original language and in the original culture, the heart was more than just your feelings. Like if you look on the TV, it's like, I love you with all my heart. And it's talking about like your passions and your, your feels. It's spring, you know, um, the season of of love, you know, <laughs> uh, what did I say like that? But the heart has so much more significance in terms of what it meant to the people at the time. What the heart meant was that it was, it actually signified your personal identity because it was the considered the vital center of life for human beings. So the heart, whatever was your heart, was actually your personal identity very different nuance. It's very, very, very essential to someone's being. The identity of a person lied in the heart. The effective center for human emotions, obviously that is something that we carry as well. And actually the really interesting thing is that the heart was considered to be the place of intellectual visualization, thought, understanding and attention. So it wasn't that people looked at the brain because they didn't know what the brain was and what the heart was in its fullness. So it was that the heart was actually the center of your identity. It was the center of your emotions. It was the center of your life, but it was actually the center of your reasoning. It was the center of your thoughts, your understanding, your attention and your visualization. I want to side note really quick to debunk the wrong theology in a passage in Jeremiah. I think it's 20 something. It says, you know, the heart, the heart is so can, the heart is so deceitful. Who can understand? And a lot of pastors preach about this to say that you shouldn't trust your feelings. Don't go based on your feelings. That is actually talking about your thoughts. So when the pastors say, oh, the thought, like the heart is deceitful, who can understand it? And therefore you need to think through your faith and not just feel it out in prayer. That's actually wrong theology because it's actually saying don't trust your thoughts as well. And it's actually saying to test everything by God. Saying don't trust yourself. <laughs> okay, so I, I just want to clarify. I know this is, a, this is actually a complete tangent. I don't do this very often, but I just feel the need to clarify that. It is not that your thoughts are more valuable or more important or more essential than your feelings. Your thoughts and your feelings are both important to God equally in different ways. For those of you guys who are feelers and feel like you want to be able to think more, and for those of you guys who are thinkers and you want to be able to feel more, both are important to God. Embrace the way that you are made. But in this context, the heart is the center, the epicenter of both. Um, and it's not just that feelings are feelings, but it's also that thoughts can be deceitful as well. Um, so anyways, complete tangent. The heart is the point of personal identity. It's the effective center for human emotions, and it is the noetic center for thoughts and understanding and attention. It is also considered to be the realm 
in yourself in which you have a relationship with God. So it's the center of your identity. It's the epicenter or the origin factory of your heart and your, and your, and your feelings. Um, it is the origin of your thoughts and your rationale. And it is also the place in which God communes with you. So the Holy Spirit is thought to be in the heart, like it dwells in our hearts, right? We've heard that time and time again, but it seemed to be the realm where we have a relationship with God. If you understand what this is actually talking about, the heart is really, really significant. It's not something to be compartmentalized. It's actually everything. Feelings, thoughts, identity, and where you have a relationship with God. It's all of that in one. And then it says suhe, the soul. Actually, the soul and the mind are considered to be kind of parallel in this context. People didn't often separate the soul from the mind. Um, and the soul, the reason why the soul is mentioned, it was actually mentioned mainly because, I mean, the heart and soul, the soul is also, suhe is the self, the soul, the center. It's the essence of your being. Um, it is the spiritual aspect of you. C.S. Lewis said that we are amphibians, human beings, because we are both body and soul. And soul is actually not just about the, the epicenter of who you are, but it's actually about that spiritual nature. It's your spirit. It's your person, um, your spiritual person, a very important property of your, of your being, of your existence. Um, but the reason why God's people, so knowing all of this, why, why, why does Luke write that the church was of one heart and one soul. The significance of that is twofold. The first thing is that there was a Greek saying that friends share one soul. So this, this at the time, um, Jerusalem and the people of Israel were, call, were a colony under the Roman Empire. And um, the prevailing culture... I believe it was from Alexander the Great, is Greek. Hellenistic culture was prevailing. Actually, there were more, there were more Jews that can speak Greek than Hebrew. Barely any uh, Jew at this point remembered how to speak Hebrew. Um, and there was a, the, the, the saying that friends share one soul was so essential and so deeply entrenched in the culture um, that Luke was using this to explain the oneness of the body of Christ. And the second thing is heart and soul, these words together is actually a reference to the Old Testament. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. With all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. With heart with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. <laughs> Some stringing of those. It's even written, it's so essential to uh, the Jewish custom that it's actually written in the Ten Commandments. Referred to time and time again, the prophets bring it up time and time again, the importance of loving the Lord your God that way. And actually con verbalizing that we, that the people were together in one heart and one soul, Luke is actually making a reference to worship to God and devotion to God. To say that God's people were not just of one identity and one feeling and one thought and one soul and one entity in friendship just to be, just for the sake of being that close. 
but it was in reverence and worship to God. And so Luke is actually doing this to explain that the root of unity in the body of Christ is worship to God. And that because the unity of the church is derived from deep, not just worship, but devotion to God, that is why they were able to be as close as they were. Because if everybody is worshiping the Lord with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, and everybody is devoted to God, then they are devoted to each other because we are all devoted to God, right? And so Luke is making a very, very important theological statement about unity that unity is rooted in devotion to god not in socioeconomic status not in hobbies or interests not in what you what you can do and what you can't but in devotion to god and that it was of one heart that they had one identity one vital center you have to think about this Luke is a doctor. Luke is not a poet. He was writing things pragmatically, and yet he still uses this visual, this very poetic vision. Realistically speaking, it's not that every single person were thinking the same thoughts and feeling the same emotions every day, but Luke is getting at the fact that the heart, the center of our being is the same because we all worship God. And that is what Luke is getting at in order to explain community, right? How? How are we of one heart and one soul and one mind? How are we able to do that? It's the power of the Holy Spirit. So Luke makes this reference, and if you read, if you read it, excuse me, if you read it says, you know, with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. They had all in common. So, Luke is saying that the church of Christ is not actually bound together by human effort, but it's bound together by the power of the Holy Spirit to transform us. So I guess this is more of a side note, but if you feel like you are not connected to the body, if you feel like you are distant from the body of Christ, my question to you is, are you worshiping God? How deep is your devotion to your Lord? And if your devotion is not deep, and if you're wondering, Jane Doe, how can I get closer to God? My next question is, how open are you to the power of the Holy Spirit to transform your life beyond your control? And that is actually the center of unity. So when we commune with God and we commune with each other within God, you can actually get a whole lot more close than if you spend all day talking to each other about nothing. Um, and Luke is getting at the, the essential element of God's people in that way. Now, he mentions the motivations of unity in heart and soul. And then he mentions the means of unity by the power of the Holy Spirit. And like I said before, Luke is a pragmatist just like me. I love reading Luke because he is very, very detail-oriented. So if there's, a, if there's a motivation and if there's a means, then there's an effect and a result, a visual, visible result of unity in the body of Christ in motivation and in means. And to Luke, it was not worshiping in the same space, but it was actually unity in action was sharing. So I'm going to say this one more time. Unity and action was sharing. 
He explains here, he says, there was not a needy person among them for as many as were owner of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. The initial reaction that some of you might have to this is, Jane though, is this saying that I need to sell all my houses? No, Luke is not saying that everybody sold all of their houses, but they did share their wealth as according to the need of the body of Christ. Am I telling you to sell everything? I'm not making any definitive statement about what you should or should not do. All I'm doing is explaining to you uh, scripture. So if you feel convicted to do so, I want to encourage you to pray. Um, But I don't necessarily feel that I'm in the place to be able to tell you what to do with your stuff. I believe that that is coming out of your own volition, out of your own relationship with God. But it is worth all of our... It's worth thinking about at the very least, the fact that the main, the main action of the body of Christ in unity was sharing. And not disorganized, not, not just, let me give to you everything I have. It wasn't, it wasn't disorganized. The people would give, their, give whatever proceeds of whatever they had sold to the apostles, and then the apostles would distribute it to the needs. Now, the church today does not necessarily function like this. Keep that in mind. However, that was the way that the church organized everybody having need. And in the midst of that, there was a man, a Levite, and his name was Barnabas. And he was an example to all. His name was son of the exhorter. He actually becomes good friends with Paul. And um, Paul goes on a lot of his missionary journeys with Barnabas side by side. But he was actually um, a leader in the church at the time and an example for other people to follow. So that was what the body of Christ looked like at the time. And it says at the very end, day by day, they were being adding to the number those who were being saved because the church was authentic because in this unity in heart and mind and soul, by means of the power of the Holy Spirit, because of the power of the Holy Spirit, acted out in sharing life, not just life and food, but like things, like actual things, like actually sharing instead of hogging what we have. In doing all of these things, the church was seen the church was able to convey the authenticity of God. And so day by day, their actions, just their example, there was not much evangelism happening, not much like overt sharing of the gospel that was left to the apostles. But day by day, they were being added to their number, those who were being saved because of the example of the life of the church. Now, you might ask Jane though, it sounds like, and I, I can't help but see this word in like the internet meme, like lowercase, uppercase, lowercase, uppercase, democratic socialism, you know, with the, the effect, the TikTok effect, democratic socialism, right? It kind of look, it might sound like that a little bit, democratic socialism. But the difference between democratic socialism and the body of Christ is that nobody was forcing nobody to do this. It was not obligation. It was 100% voluntary. That is the crazy thing about the body of Christ in this time especially. It's that every single person, they were sharing out of the goodness of their own hearts. They were not being forced. 
They were not being pushed. They were sharing out of the goodness of their hearts. Why would anybody share to that extent to the point where you have to organize sharing within the body of Christ? Why would anybody share like that? It takes unity with the people that you're sharing with, which is devote, which is grounded in worship. So it takes unity in the body of Christ. It takes oneness of heart and soul with the people that you are sharing to. A clarity in the reason for your sharing, which is not found in the people. So you're not necessarily giving to somebody and expecting a return. But your reason for sharing is not even their need, but it's actually devotion to God. So in obedience to God, something that has, something that does not, like whatever happens out of their sharing doesn't affect their motivation. Coupled with their unity in the body of Christ. And then finally, the friendship of the believers. Not just one heart, but one soul. Luke's whole point in putting that is to emphasize biblical friendship. That it wasn't just unity in the body of Christ. It wasn't just one identity that we shared as one body, but that there, were, there was friendship. So obedience and, and devotion to God, unity in the body of Christ through this, and friendship with the believers... And then the power of the Holy Spirit that continues to transform our hearts led to 110% voluntary sharing. In order to do that, you have to cling more tightly to God than what you own. I believe that COVID is very, very interesting because we, we are losing what we're holding on to. And we're being taught to be more open-handed with the things that we held on to, whether that be comfort in schedule or comfort in possession. Whatever it may be, we grieve the loss of the things that we held so tightly. That's why grief of missed opportunities is so much stronger because we had held on to everything so tightly. And I believe that that is the main problem with the American church being able to carry this out in practice. It's that we own too much to be able to let it go. And so that's something to genuinely think about, that they had everything in common. Active church, genuine church, is sharing. And we see the example right after the body of Christ is explained. We see the example of Ananias and Sapphira. 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 Um, I don't think that this needs much explanation in terms of the narrative. And Ananias and Sapphira, Sapphira, his wife, they have a house or they have a property and they sell it. They make a claim to all the church. We sold it for this much and we're giving all the proceeds to the church. But in reality, they held on to some. And Ananias and Sapphira, they're giving all of this to the church, and they go up to Peter, who's, who's take, making a log of, of, of everything, and they place the money at, at Peter. And Peter just asks the simple question, this is what you did this for, right? And Ananias says, yes, it is. Ananias' greed is personal, and Ananias' greed is deceitful. I want to make a distinction about Ananias' greed. It was not that Peter expected Ananias to give everything he owned, but it was that Ananias had said, he had said, he had claimed 
that he was giving all of the proceeds, but had only given some. In making a show of his generosity, Ananias had given a bit of a hyperbole. Maybe he treated it like a white lie. I'm not really sure what was going through his mind. But Peter says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And so for those of you guys who might feel like that was a really harsh way to put it, I want to make distinct the fact that the first thing about Ananias is that what Peter is implying is that Ananias had said that he was giving everything, but he was only giving some. And Insul was lying to the witness of the Holy Spirit, to lying to the church in the witness of the Holy Spirit, because God is constantly with us, right? And God, the church is, is where is the is the dwelling place of the presence of God. We all are churches. It says in 1 Corinthians, don't you know that you yourself are a temple of the Holy Spirit and that God's spirit dwells within you. And so we are constantly, we are all in the presence of God, in the presence of this moment. And and Ananias had said something, but had done another thing. And Peter, upon receiving Ananias's possessions which on the outside seems so generous and seems like an act of such deep love peter asks six questions why did you allow satan to fill your heart the word fill is used because all throughout luke the church is described to be filled with the holy spirit so peter is making a dichotomy or the author luke is making a dichotomy between the church which is filled with the holy spirit and ananias and ananias which is filled with the motivations that have been given to him by satan why did he allow satan to fill his heart why he lied to the spirit why did you lie to the holy spirit peter brings into account in this very very church-related thing where there is no spiritual, there might not be anything visible or explicitly spiritual about collecting funds for the poor within the body of Christ. It might be seen in just, just another church event, right? But he actually says, why did you lie to the Spirit? And Peter brings into the equation the presence of the Holy Spirit. The third thing is, why did you put some of the money for yourself? Why did you put aside some of the money for yourself? The fourth question is, why did you not see that you had the right of ownership? The fifth question is, why did you not realize you exercise control over the proceeds? He's asking, what Peter is asking is, why did you just not be honest? He's not necessarily seeing, Peter is asking him a very honest question because Peter is not forcing him to give what he has. At this point, when Ananias and Sapphira are being generous, nobody has forced them to do anything. They're just engaging in an action of the church. Maybe they went with the flow. Maybe they were trying to make a point about holy, about how holy or how righteous or how loving they were. Maybe they were making a show of their love in the body of Christ. Nobody knows of the motivations of Ananias' decision to act in this way. But Peter is saying, why you had ownership all this time. And even after you sold it, you exercised control. You were the one that had right of ownership. It wasn't the church. So why would you grieve the Holy Spirit? Why would your heart take it upon itself to do such a thing? Why would you lie? It is unnecessary. 
This is really important. And Ananias, upon hearing it, he drops and he breathes his last on the spot. If you can imagine how terrifying that is, it is actually terrifying. Imagine a church member dropping dead. And so the young man carries him out, buries him. Three hours later, his wife walks in, not realizing what had happened to her husband. Peter asks her the same question he asked Ananias. He gives her her own chance to be honest. She chooses not otherwise. And Peter says, why, why do you lie to the Holy Spirit? See, your husband is laying outside, and there you will go with him. She drops and breathes her last. The church, seeing all of this, comes into great fear. Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. I want to make a, I just want to remind you guys that this is not like fear in terms of like being afraid and terrified, but it's fear in terms of reverence of God. Um, it says in Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and understanding. Because when you are able to, like in a human way, when you are able to really see the power of God and come into a greater under understanding and greater awareness of how great God is, and when you really start to understand that for yourself, you will be filled with fear to some degree because of how powerful he actually is. And so this is actually not necessarily talking about fear in terms of terror, being terrified. It's not terror, um, but it's, it's about... Um, seeing the magnitude of what God can do. Your question might be, um, you might have a question like, Jane Doe, were they believers? You know, if they are believers, is this not harsh? Why is there no grace in this moment? Uh, the first question of where, whether or not they were believers. Um, the assumption is that they were believers, but if you actually read the the passage and the context a little bit more carefully, it might it, it becomes more evident, especially in the original language of how Ananias and Sapphira were explained, that they were maybe sympathizers. Um, maybe they weren't necessarily believers. Maybe they weren't necessarily actually fully believing in the body of Christ, but they were sympathetic and were a part of the community of believers. So even though, we, I mean, we all have that one friend that is in our church group but may not fully believe. Um, it's that kind of situation uh, where they might be sympathetic to the faith and be supporters of the church, but they might not necessarily fully believe in God or follow the custom. Um, and so that's, but th there is there is some, there, it's, scripture is not fully clear on their status of salvation. Um, and I believe that that's, Okay, because that's not necessary. To your second question, potential question of, is this not harsh? Why would God punish people this way? My response is that it is not, 
eternal damnation. There is judgment involved when you lie to God. So just because Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins doesn't mean you can just do whatever the heck you want. And I think that this, this passage is a very good example to speak against cheap grace, where we might think to ourselves, oh, Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, therefore I can do whatever I want and come back into the church when I'm 35. The reason why that is more difficult to see, like while you are able to discern what you are doing, the reason for why that is still inappropriate to act in, even though there is grace for you, is because God is not just the God of grace, but he's also a God of fairness. He's a God of justice. Judgment is a part of fairness. Now, I'm not saying that you guys are going to be judged for every single little thing that you do, but that's not because we don't deserve it. That's because God is gracious. And this, I believe, is a word of warning as to what God is capable of. See, we wouldn't know grace unless we knew the gravity of our action. Like, if you don't do your homework but your teacher is completely fine with it, it's like, oh yeah, that's okay. If the teacher's like, oh yeah, that's okay, then it's like, oh yeah, I guess it wasn't a big deal. But let's say it was a huge deal that you missed an assignment and it resulted in a big grade penalty. Then you would understand, wow, the teacher, within that understanding, without that backdrop, and then the second one you miss it and the teacher gives you grace and pardons it, then you would be a whole lot more grateful. You'd be like, wow, this teacher forgave me even though this is the punishment that should have come upon my action. So number one, it brings, it brings into account the graciousness of God because in every one of us, there, might, there is always the temptation to be Ananias. In all of us, we all might have a certain chokehold over what we own. I, I am privy to this as well. I must confess, you know, I'm always, you know, I th- I'm a very big pragmatist. And so I'm always, you know, looking at what I own, looking at, you know, all the money that I have, looking at how I should plan for the future. And um, I'm, not, I'm not always willing to let that go, right? And so I'm not necessarily saying to you that that is bad. However, It's not that I'm not saying to you that that is bad. What I am actually saying is, is that we've been forgiven. So I'm not necessarily saying that the way that Ananias and Sapphira acted is worthy, is, is always going to be judged because all of us are acting in the same way. I lost my train of thought. All of us are acting in the same way. And I am privy to this as well. However, through Ananias and Sapphira's action, we must remember the grace that we have been given every single time we put our possessions above God. Because let's face it, the reason why Ananias and Sapphira held on to what they had, even though they announced their generosity to the church and still set off a portion for themselves, it's not to focus on It's not necessarily that they were just being generous, but it was also 
that they were making light of the Holy Spirit, thought that they could actually get away with it because there would be no consequence to their action, and they were making light of God. When we do that, when we, when we, when we do this kind of action where we are being very practically, this is a very practical act of lying in the body of Christ, not only does that hurt the believers, but that's also unacceptable in the presence of God. And I'm actually very afraid to say this right now because there are many church leaders that have done this. Um, a lot of church splits happen over church leaders that, you know, smuggle out money, launder out money. Um, and it hurts the body of Christ. But we have to understand and see how much God is involved in the matters of the church and how much our unity dwells not in our relationships, but in the power of the Holy Spirit to change our hearts. So Ananias and Sapphira, we see here, in their great show and in their sectioning off, we see here that rather than acting in unity of the body of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, they might have been acting out of their own generosity. And that's why they might have given this small, what could, seen, what could be seen by them as this small white light, not realizing who God was and what God is capable of and what God can actually do. And so they lied in the presence of God, in the presence of God's believers about what they were giving. In a lot of the cases in the church today, we might focus in on what that church member gave. But God is not blind to the motivations of our hearts. I believe that there is a purpose for why God is making me say this all. Um, and I believe that that is not to scare you. I don't think that this message was given to me in order to scare us into sharing, in order to scare us into being truthful with one another. Rather, I think that God is making a point about the necessity of the unity of body of Christ being rooted in him and the fact that we are accountable in our actions in the church by God. That the person to judge Ananias and Sapphira in this moment was not Peter, but it was the Holy Spirit. And the motivations for sharing and the motivations for being in unity is the Holy Spirit. And I believe that in this moment, what God is doing is he's entering into the equation of church matters. Now, our church is going through a bunch of transitions and in this time of COVID, our church is also going through financial troubles. Um, it's not easy, right? Um, however, at the same time, we must understand the simple fact that God is in our midst. And God is the reason for our fellowship. And God is the reason for our action. And when we act in ways where we take God out of the equation in church, 
there are consequences to that. Many of us might have acted in the church for selfish reasons. To you, I say, there is grace for you. Because after all, we were not shot dead. We were not dropped. We did not drop to the ground. Um, even though we are no better than Ananias. That is God's grace over your life. You have to understand the magnitude of God's grace when we seek out personal agendas and personal demands from the body of Christ relationally and emotionally and spiritually. There is grace for us. We must understand that this is what is deserving of that action. Deceitfulness in front of God in the presence of God's people. This is what is deserving of that. And yet, we have been given grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And the point of all of that is that we have everything in common and are accountable to God, even in actions of the church. And that is what makes us authentic. And the difference in authenticity between somebody who is of God and who isn't of God is in the power of the Holy Spirit that leads us to share. So my question to you today is, how much do you let the Holy Spirit into your life, in your actions, to other people? Do you serve the church or do you serve the people in your life out of the goodness of your heart or out of the power of the Holy Spirit? Are you devoted to God? And is that the motivation to why you are devoted to people? Because God doesn't need our limited love to be the motivation and the driving force of the church. Limited human love will not sustain the body of Christ because the body of Christ, the foundational stone of the body of Christ is Christ, not a human being. Therefore, our individual motivations cannot just be the, the goodness of our own hearts. Our motivations need to be God. More than our possessions, more than even the people of the church, God. And in the example of Ananias and Sapphira, we must see the fact of the matter that God is the one to hold us accountable in every church affair. There are a lot of churches in this world today that act in ways that are not aligned to the word of God as though they have no accountability. In this case, we, in this story, all of us, we are not Peter, we are Ananias, and yet we are alive. And so we must understand that the body of Christ is held accountable by God. And the unity of, of the body of Christ is also by God and by God alone. In summary, how can you apply this into, your, into our lives? How can we apply this into our lives? How can the church apply this into our lives? Visible unity. The unity of the local church is real only when believers meet together and when the needs of individual believers become known. The visible usage of material resources reflects authenticity. It's not, and it's, you, got, you have to get this straight because Ananias and Sapphira sought to give in order to be authentic, but we are authentic first because of the Holy Spirit and that is why we give. So check your hearts. Why are you giving to the church? Why do you give to those who have need? Even as you should, why do you? Because you love the church or because God loves you? And secondly, 
We need more Barnabases and not Ananiases. There's a reason why God places Barnabas on one end and at the very one after he says Ananias. Because Barnabas was an example to the church who gave, not because he had a lot, not because he was a good man, but because he was filled by the Holy Spirit. And Ananias sought to make a name for himself, sought his own glory, announced to everybody that he was giving in this way and then actually didn't follow through with it. And there were consequences to his actions. Although we are all capable of being an Ananias, by grace we have been saved. By faith, through faith we are able to stand in the body of Christ. Through faith we are able to still engage in unity and have all things in common. We have one identity. We are of one soul. We are able to do all of these things together. So now church, out of this grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in prayer and in fear of God. In an acknowledgement of the presence of God in our lives, let us walk from the place of Ananias to the place of Barnabas. Because the church needs more Barnabases. And nobody needs a religious status on Facebook. You don't need to post a religious status on Facebook and post a cross in your description in order for people to be saved. The body of believers, our witness, is the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. God doesn't need you to do a good thing. He just needs you to let him in. It's not the point to do something good. He doesn't need your money. God wants your life. And you need to be able to hold on to that. Trust and open your heart up to the Holy Spirit so that God can do what he wants in you. So that God can move you in the way that he wants you to move. Be open to the movement of the Spirit in your life. And be open to the body of Christ whom you are bound to in that devotion to God, not in anything of the world. Beware against seeking your own glory in leadership and in generosity. We do not need to be magnified. Only God is magnified. So church, we are going to be placed in a lot of positions, especially during COVID, where there is a spiritual call, an emotional call for help. As you think of giving and as you think of sharing your life with other people and as you think of sharing the gospel, my question to you is, what is the motivation of unity for you? And what is the motivation of your giving? Are you giving out of obligation or responsibility or out of volition? Are you sitting on your butt and saying that you believe in God, but are you holding on to what you have more than people more than God would we move church from shallow unity and shallow generosity to spirit-filled unity and generosity would we take steps into the presence of God where church is the place of his presence
yes, it is important to do things, but what's more important is your heart. God doesn't need your money. He needs, he wants your life. And what Peter is getting at here is, why is your heart not with God? Why are you giving when your heart is serving yourself? Why do you serve? Why do you engage in unity? I pray, church, that we would be a body that can see the gravity of what's happening. Take Ananias and Sapphira's act um, or, or story as a warning to our own selves about acting for selfish reasons in the body of Christ. That we would rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to be changed and renewed and strengthened. That we would cling to the devotion of Christ. That we would see God's grace in every moment we have sought our own selves in church. And that we would walk in genuineness and authenticity towards becoming a body of Christ that can reflect God, the goodness of God to the world. I'm sorry if that was a little bit all over the place. Um, I have to confess, as we go into this time of prayer, if you can bow your heads to pray, I have to confess, I'm a little frazzled right now. I've been frazzled for the past 30 minutes because I feel like God has hit me with a lot of things in the midst of this sermon as well. So this sermon didn't fully go the way that I I was thinking um, that it would go. And I believe that I believe that God is convicting me to confess that in many ways that I am also Ananias. Um, If you feel like, man, that's me. Man, what have I been doing? I I, I want you to be comforted in the fact that I, I am with you and that this call to be open to the presence of God and this call to be open to the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not because God is trying to condemn you. It's because God wants your heart. He wants your cardia. He wants the, the, your identity. He wants your emotion. He wants your thoughts. He wants stake, like actual stock in your life. He wants relationship with you. And that's why the body of Christ was tied together in one cardia because it was not about us It was not about our unity. It was our devotion to God that led us to be in unity with one another. That's what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. And it's not that God needs you to be a good person. God just needs you to be open to whatever it is that he's asking. You don't need to make a show of what you can give. You don't need to make a show of how you can serve. God just wants stake in your life. He wants your heart. And church, I stand before you imperfect. I am in every way and I have just as much as you are. But we have not been dropped out. That's our second chance. Would we be open to the power of the Holy Spirit? We can't become good people on our own. We need Jesus. We need the Savior to move in our hearts. We need to be open to the Holy Spirit. you pray with me. From wherever you are listening, we hope you are blessed by this week's message. For more information, check out our website at mbkumc.com.